passage uh, on which today's uh, teaching is based comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I'll be reading from verses 1 through 7. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Verse 8 begins with, love never fails. If you weren't here last week, we kicked off a, a new series. The Apostle Paul, in Galatians chapter 5, he lists nine character qualities, nine character traits that together make up the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, if the gospel has transformed your life, if, the, if God's Spirit has entered into your life, if you have new life in Jesus, in other words, the outcome is fruit. Now today, we're first going to look at love. Love. We're going to look at four things. Uh, love is not about your gifts your expressions of your gifts. Love is not about your sacrifices. Then we're going to talk about, well, then what is love? And then we're going to talk about, then who is love? It's not about your gifts. It's not about your sacrifice. Well, then what is it and who is it? Four things. First, love is not about your gifts. It's not about your service. Verses 1 to 2, Paul begins this text with the same thoughts that, usually, that we usually skipped, skip um. We over, over time skip uh, to, to get to good parts. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, if I have a gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries, if I have, all, uh, if I have uh, a faith that can move mountains. Now you need to know in the previous chapter, the Apostle Paul's talking about miraculous gifts. Prophecy, that's revelation from God. You see, you got to remember that this is before the times of the New Testament. This is before they had the New Testament. So the early church, they, they relied on the Old Testament and particular gifts, tongues, and prophecies during that particular time. But today, the Apostle Paul says, right, yes, maybe you're able to understand God's will. Uh, maybe you know what God's will is. That is, you understand God's word. You teach it well. You're a really good counselor. You're able to provide a lot of good advice to people. He says, maybe you're a very inspiring leader or an inspiring person. He's talking about your gifts. He's talking about your talents. He's talking about your ability. You see, he's writing to the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church, they were known, they were filled with talented people because Corinth was a very large city not too different from the city of Philadelphia. Very big city, powerful city. It was the center of finance, the center of commerce, the center of academia. And you lived in Corinth because you were intelligent, because you were educated, because you had wealth, because you were talented. But Paul says, you can have all these gifts. You can be a great counselor. 
You can be a great teacher. You can be an excellent leader and yet have no love. What does that mean? What he's saying is that these gifts, they can actually make you less loving, impatient, unkind, boastful, envious, he says. And that's, that's pretty remarkable, right? What he's saying is that there's, this type of, there's a type of serving, there's a type of giving, there's a type of loving that we do that's based on your skills. And even though you say you're thinking for others, you may think you're thinking for other people. In the end, you're every bit as impatient, you're every bit as condescending and divisive, and you're proud in the church as people who are not in the church. And if the church of Corinth, who had tremendous gifts, They did lots of works of service. If they can be vulnerable to this type of love, then we can be vulnerable to this type of love. Now, you're saying, some of you are saying, well, not me. I mean, I'm a pretty genuine person. Yeah? Single folks, I want to ask you this. When you meet somebody and they're interesting to you, and you go to tell your friends that you've met somebody really interesting, what's the first thing that they ask you? And what's the first thing you talk about? What's the first thing that matters to you? You say, well, what does he or she do? What do they do? Where did they study? Well, he does this and she does this. Well, she's a very impressive person. It's all about the externals. In other words, your gifts, the externals, those are the things that we want. Those are the things that we're looking for. Those are the things that we're attracted to. And Paul says, you can be doing everything for good reasons. You can even be doing it for God, you say, and you can be brilliant and gifted and working very, very, very hard and yet be filled with anger and be filled with evil and be filled with envy and be filled with pride. And he says, you are nothing. Now, there are pastors in this room, people studying to be pastors in this room. There are directors in this room. There are leaders in a church in this room. There are parents in this room. If you are serving in the church, that's everybody here, right? If you are serving in the church, you need to hear this. Because what Paul's saying is you think you're something because you serve or because you have gifts or because you're talented or because you're impressive. You are nothing, he says. You are nothing. That means that you, it's totally possible to think that simply because you do a lot, simply because, yes, I'm a talented person. Yes, I'm a gifted person. I must be a Christian. I'm serving and using my gifts to serve in the church. I must be a believer. In fact, we tend to judge the maturity of a person based on how much they do, how much they serve. No. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men, and of angels, but have not love. He says, I am only a resounding gong, a clanging cymbal. What does that mean? Remember, this is, <clears throat> this is uh, the ancient Greco-Roman times. And so um, having many gods was a norm. It was a pluralistic society. People in the ancient uh, Roman and Gre- Greco times, they had many, many gods. It's a lot like Philadelphia. Now, some of you are saying, well, I mean, what do you mean it's a lot like Philadelphia? 
We may not worship the God of the harvest. We may not worship the God of commerce. We may not worship the God of fertility. But think about this. In ancient times, you used the tallest, it's usually the tallest buildings that were dedicated to the gods. And they were oftentimes placed in the center of a city. So the tallest buildings at the center represented what you worshiped. What are our tallest buildings? What's in center city? Well, it's commerce, business, finance, science, medicine, fertility, the harvest, commerce. Oftentimes, the reason why this is the case is because our dreams to accumulate wealth, to make it, to have that large home in a nice neighborhood, sending our kids to the best schools, to raise our family a certain way. Those are our gods. In other words, what that means is that our gods are still the gods, the God of harvest, the God of commerce, commerce, the God of, the God of fertility. And our homes, our large homes, and our skyscrapers, they are our temples because we still worship and serve and willing to build into those things. In ancient times, how did they worship? Well, you had long lines, and in these long lines, these processionals, they had gongs and symbols to honor the gods. Why? It's because they wanted to draw the attention of the gods. In ancient times, you worshiped by, you said, look at us, we're honoring you. Look at us, we're serving you. Look at us, we're doing all these things to serve you. That's how many of us view God. That's how many of us view the church. We're trying to get God's attention. Look at me. See me, we say. Because we want things from God. It's why we demand so much from the church. It's why we demand so much from our leaders. It's why we demand so much from one another. So when you serve, it's not because you really love God or because you really love others. Those are the two greatest commandments, right? It's because you're really doing it for yourself. It's the ultimate form of idolatry. It's why, why are we so desperate? Think about this. Why are we so desperate for the approval of other people? And the way we get their approval is what? We first try to serve them. We give and we give and we lavish gifts to certain people. We turn our attention. We play favorites. That's what we do. Why do we need their attention? It's because our approval in here among us equals our approval up there with God. Paul says, this is you. And this is of no value to God, which means you are of no value to God. It's possible to have success in the church and not have God. It's possible to give your life to service, your life to ministry, and not give your life to God. That's scary. Wow. Don't you ever make the mistake that just because you know God's counsel, just because you know God's Bible, his word, just because you're an effective leader, that makes you a Christian. What you know, what you do, how long you've been in the church, Paul says, nothing. It means nothing. And it certainly doesn't mean new life. That's the first point. It's not about our gifts. It's not about serving other people. Secondly, it's not even about our sacrifice. It's not about living a good life. What does that mean? Verse 3, if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but not have love, I gain nothing. 
One, if I give all I possess to the poor, he's saying, even if I give everything away, this isn't a person who's just tithing. He says, if I give all I possess, he's giving away everything he owns. He's saying, even if, remember, he's speaking in extremes at every line here. And he says, if, if I have a faith that can move mountains, if I give everything I, I possess away. Secondly, if I surrender my body to the flames, I, he says, he's saying, if I'm martyred, Without love, I gain nothing. In other words, it's possible to give your life away or give your life up and still do that to get something back, to gain something. You're doing it out of a selfishness, to gain something, to get something from God. A heart that's changed by the gospel always leads to sacrifice. But What Paul's saying here is that you can give and you can surrender and you can sacrifice everything and not be changed at all. That's scary. And he, there are some symptoms to this. One, simply giving, outreach, just giving your life into social justice. But one, you're doing it for you. And two, because you're doing it for you, one of the symptoms of that is that you get angry because other people are not doing it with you. You get tired because you're doing it alone in some ways. You feel anxious because because why are other people not doing this like me? Why are other people not giving like me? Why are other people not sacrificing or serving like me? Why are people not seeing or acknowledging me? And so three, what happens is we become rude and boastful and selfish. We're easily angered. We gossip about other people and their flaws. We're envious of their lives. Remember, Paul's writing, he's not writing to people who don't know Jesus. He's writing to the church. He's writing to us. And that means another symptom, fourth symptom, is that a mere sacrificial life, it can be born out of our superiority, our pride. And that God sees. God knows underneath our overt acts. God knows underneath our overt acts of goodness Underneath our over-reputation of sacrifice, there's a covert fatigue, a covert deadness, a covert self-absorption. Sin makes us turn inward. Sin makes us self-absorbed. You only see yourself. Everything's about you. And so what happens is you, you look down on others or you look up to other people but it's all about how, you, how that makes you feel about yourself. And so we're constantly trying to manipulate people, manipulate our relationships, surround ourselves with people who only make us feel better, who only make us feel comfortable about ourselves. And this is in the church. Paul's not writing to non-believers outside the church. He's writing to people in the church. And then we go, you know, we say hashtag blessed, hashtag community. That's what we say. The gospel's not about feeling better about yourself. The gospel's not about feeling comfortable about who you are. The gospel isn't even about behavioral modification. If it were, that would just be another form of doing something so that we can earn the approval of others and therefore feel like we're earning the approval of God in some cosmic way. And Paul says, you gain nothing and you end up in the same place. You are miserable. A lot of us here, we're proud and selfish in the heart because we've received the gospel 
we receive the gospel and we say we received it by grace alone. And yet, we act as if we received by the, gospel, the gospel by works alone. And so we act entitled and we act like we're deserving of certain things and we're condescending towards certain people because you took a class. That's the only thing that separates some of you from other people is that you took one more class. We're oftentimes very, very unkind and very, very rude. And we overestimate ourselves so much to the degree. And Paul says it's possible to give and it's possible to surrender and sacrifice out of your emptiness rather than a fullness in Christ. And we know that by fruit, your character. Is there a love of God? Is there a love for other people that makes you more attractive as a person? Fruit. Or is there a type of service and a type of giving and a type of knowledge that you carry that makes you actually less attractive to other people? Does your love result in giving? Is your love, uh, does the love that you have result in your giving and your sacrifice or do you give and sacrifice to show that you have love? That's not love, Paul says. That's not love. Well, then what is it? Third point, what is it? Paul says, one, love is a supernatural power. Verses four to seven, he gives us this list that goes against everything that the Corinthians were. The Corinthians, remember, they were gifted and good people. They had social programs and they helped the poor. But because their identity was in their works and because their identity was in their talent, they had short fuses and they were unkind. And essentially, because they felt inferior on the inside, they envied people out there. And as a result, they acted superior on the outside. They were boastful and they were proud. So they put other people down and they built themselves up. They were arrogant and they were, they were insensitive to other people and they were rude and they were easily angered. They were irritable and, and they held grudges against people. In verses four to seven, this is a little bit of an English lesson, okay? In the Greek, Paul actually uses transitive verbs to describe love. These are verbs, a transitive verb is a verb that has an object, Love is patient. Love is kind. He doesn't say love has patience. He doesn't say if you want to be more loving, you got to be more patient. That's not what he says. He says love is patient. The Greek word patient there is makrothumia, long-suffering. In other words, love suffers long. Love is long-suffering. He uses a verb in a weird place. The word love is a verb. He uses a verb and says that this verb suffers. And usually the, the transitive verb, a transitive word, basically takes that word and, and always as an object. Love suffers towards people. Love suffers towards circumstances, right? And so there's always an object to your doing, right? I'm going to kind of put this together. He, what he's saying here is that usually we say so-and-so is patient. So-and-so is kind. But in this case, he says love is patient. Love is kind, that makes love a subject. That makes love a noun. That's what he's saying. 
In other words, what Paul's doing is he's, he's personifying love. He makes love a noun. He's saying love is a personal power. Love is a personal dynamic power. You don't do love. You have to meet love. You have to encounter love. You have to experience a real love. Look, I'm going to say it like this. If you just try to do verses 4 to 7, because these are descriptions of a loving person. I'm a married person, and so I'm going I'm to have to do more of these things. You may be able to get away with doing some of those things for a little while. But you got to look at the way the progression of verses 4 to 7. It's written almost like a hike, a journey. You start on the journey with patience and kindness. Okay, all right, we're getting started. All right, you don't envy. You don't boast. Okay, all right. You're not proud or rude. Okay, you're kind of going on this journey, and you realize it's a hike up a mountain, and you start to push. Love isn't self-seeking. Oof. Love isn't easily angered. Wow. Love isn't resentful. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Wow. You start to push harder. Love doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. That means love doesn't lie. And, And love doesn't get happy when bad things happen to certain types of people. Wow. And then it becomes insurmountable. Love always protects, trusts, hopes, and perseveres, always endures. You can't climb this mountain. Why not? Why can't we climb it? It's because our love, at best, is still selfish. We have a selfish love. I'm going to say it another way. If a person right now that you love comes to you right now and says, why do you love me? Spouses, people who are dating, why do you love me? Now think about this. If you respond and you say, well, you see, you have a nice figure and you, you're, you're attractive, so that's great for sex, and it makes me feel good about myself when I'm with you in public, uh, and um, also it spares me the embarrassment of, you know, being single and, you know, all these kind of things because that's how it makes me feel. And, well, you also have a good job, which means that you not only have a nice figure, but you have a nice brain, right? And that's great for making money, and that means I'm going to have a nice lifestyle because then I'll be secure. Then I'll be safe. This will be the cure for my loneliness. You're actually really loving yourself. That kind of love will never always protect. That kind of love will never always trust. That kind of love, in fact, that kind of love goes the opposite direction. You're going to protect yourself when it comes down to it. You're not going to trust anybody with that kind of love. That kind of love will never always hope, will never always endure. No one can climb this mountain. No one can climb this mountain except one person. Who is this person? Verses four to seven, I know many of us grew up thinking, well, the text says I need to be more patient, I need to be more kind, I need to stop envying and stop boasting, I need to stop being proud, do this, don't do this. Paul's saying that you have to be transformed by love. Love is a noun, it's a person, place, or thing. 
You have to be transformed in your encounter and experience with true love. You need to be in union, what it means to be in union with love in a way that it, that love transfer to, transfers to you. In other words, his love then becomes your love. The technical term for that is imputation. This is not fluffy. This is actually very, very logical. Think about this. What happens to a marriage if you never kiss your spouse? What happens to a marriage if you never cuddle with your spouse? If you, never, if you never laugh with your spouse? What happens to your child if you never hold your child? If you never hug your child? If you never kiss your child? Your marriage or your child, they will break down. Why? Because love not only has to be demonstrated, it has to be modeled, it has to be transferred. So the more you experience love, you're able to give love. You're able to transfer love. But before you give love, then you need to learn what love is. You need, in order to learn love, then you must receive love. You must experience love. It has to be transferred to you. You need to be dynamically changed uh, in order to be powered by love. No one on earth, we are so desperate for that kind of love, a love that empowers us, when you get those feelings for that person, when you first get those feelings, oh, it gives you some power, doesn't it? All of a sudden, you start working out in the gym. You start running again. You start, oh, I got to start eating better, you say. I, you start looking at yourself in the mirror more. You start getting more haircuts more often. You start to do lots of stuff, stuff that you didn't do. Why? Because love makes you do crazy things, right? No one on, but that's a problem. No one on earth can give you, can transfer that kind of love in a way that can fix you to the degree that you can actually genuinely love another person. Not like that. The, why? And the reason is because the Bible says that we are infinitely broken by our sin. We are infinitely broken. So we need to encounter, we're so desperate to encounter loves that can fix us, that can heal us. If I have this person in my life, if I have this person, if I can only have this in my life, then I'm going to be okay. Then I'm going to feel healed. This is going to cure my loneliness. This is going to cure my sense of inadequacy. This is going to cure my insecurities. I desperately need this. And we cling to that. And a lot of us serve and give and give and give to those types of relationships, don't we? We sacrifice our bodies for those types of relationships, don't we? We sacrifice our souls, is what Paul's saying. Because we are so infinitely broken, we need to encounter an infinitely greater love. That's the only kind of love that can be transferred to us in a way that will completely heal us and change us and also shape us towards loving other people. All the other loves, all the other types of approval in the world that we've been searching for, they're broken because we're all broken people. No one person can actually heal us because they're broken too, right? And yet we sacrifice our gifts and our labor and our bodies for this. So how do you encounter this love. 
Paul personifies love. He doesn't do it by accident. He's super intentional here. He personifies love here. He's literally showing us that love has a face, that love has a body, that love is a person. He's trying to get us to this person. Verses four to seven, this is a picture of perfect love as a noun, a person, place, or thing. And Paul's trying to deepen our vision of this person who is perfectly, the only one who is perfectly patient and the perfectly kind, never envies, never boastful. He's never proud. He's never rude. He's never self-seeking. He is never easily angered or irritable. He is never resentful, never keeps a record wrong. He always protects, always uh, trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Love is a noun. It's a person, place, or thing. That person is Jesus Christ. That place is Calvary. And the thing that he's giving you is the power that can shape you to love other people genuinely. It's very, very simple. Replace the word love in this passage with Jesus. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus is not boastful. Jesus is not proud. Jesus is not rude. Jesus is not self-seeking. Jesus is not easily angered. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus never delights in evil. Jesus always rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects. Jesus always hopes. Jesus always trusts. Jesus always endures. He always perseveres. Jesus never fails. Jesus is patient. He is macrothumia. He is long-suffering. Look at, the, look at Jesus from his birth. Suffering. All those years, foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests. Yet the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. All the way to Gethsemane, Look at his suffering at Gethsemane. He says, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. All the way to the cross. You want to talk about long suffering? That entire narrative while he's on the cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's infinite suffering in that moment. Why? Because he had infinite love, perfect love. And yet on the cross, he prayed. Jesus is praying on the cross. He had the faith that can move mountains. Do you know that while he was on the cross, the ground was shaking? There was an earthquake? What did he pray? Father, forgive them. They were mocking him. They were insulting him. They were taunting him. They were, they were hurting Jesus. And yet, he's not resentful. Keeps no record of wrongs. I don't know how many times as a pastor, people have called me and said, Pastor, I've got to confess something to you. They think all of a sudden I've turned into a priest. And they say, Pastor, I've got to confess. I did this thing. I did this thing. Man, I, I'm, I'm ashamed. I don't deserve to be called this. Some of them are leaders. They say, I don't deserve to be a leader, they say. Jesus kept no record of wrongs. And he's always, on top of that, he is always protecting you and trusting, trusting God on the cross. I mean, this is Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them. He's protecting you. you we deserve to die, and yet he's protecting us, trusting God, hoping for his people, serving his people on the cross in the midst of his greatest suffering, infinite suffering, being separated from God the Father. While he is dying, 
Do you know what he's doing? He's looking to the apostle John and he says, John, I want you to take care of my mother. And he looks to his mother and he says, please treat John like your son. He's constantly thinking for his people. It's not like he had something, anything else that he should be concerned about while he's hanging on the cross and dying. Get this. Knowing that Judas was going to betray him, he still washed his feet. He still fed Judas. The narrative where they say, who's the one that's going to betray you? You talk about betrayal. Who's going to be the betrayal? Betrayer. You know what that means? That means that up until that point, no one even knew. Jesus gave no indication. That's not how we are. Right? Who was it? Well, I don't want to gossip. Like, we're kind of like, well, but, you know, uh, his, his name is, starts with a J and rhymes with Fosh. <laughs> you know, that's what we say, right? <laughs> I don't know. I don't, we don't say it that way. But <clears throat> up until this point, they didn't even know who betrayed him, who was going to betray him. He was always protecting. Even Judas. Love always perseveres to the end. Never fails. So on the cross, Jesus Christ, he's forsaken by the Father. What he's saying is this is the ultimate giving. I'm bankrupt. I've surrendered my body to the fire of hell. Jesus Christ separated from the Father. To be separated from the Father, that's what hell is. He's experiencing in a cosmic way, in a forensic way, he's experiencing hell. This is the ultimate brokenness. He who knew no sin became sin. And what he's saying is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want you. I need you. You're the only thing that can make me whole. You're the only thing that can complete me. And yet he was abandoned and rejected. And yet he still cried, it is finished. In the Greek, that phrase, it is finished, It's the debt is paid, the transaction, the transfer has been made. Jesus Christ was rejected so that we could be accepted. Jesus Christ became cosmically bankrupt so that every sin has been paid for. That's why he's always never keeping a record of wrongs. Jesus Christ lost the love of the Father so that we could receive the love of the Father. Our sins were transferred to Jesus, and his righteousness, his love, was transferred to us. A double imputation in union with Christ. We can receive a perfect love, and to the degree that you trust that you've been loved perfectly by God, that cures your need to look for it anywhere else. For the first time in your life, that means you can love somebody genuinely, not to get something from God, not to get something from them, but because you have a complete love, a perfect love, you've received it. Now you can give. You can actually genuinely give. You see that? You no longer need to use your gifts. You no longer need to serve. You no longer need to give or sacrifice for a sense of approval, for a sense of worth. The cross is the only validation that you need. The cross is the only love that you've been looking for all your life. Now you have the power to love perfectly and genuinely because Jesus' love will never fail you. 
Now, if you've been looking at verses four to seven all your life and saying these are just rules, it will crush your spirit because you will fail every time. But if you see 1 Corinthians 13 as the perfect person, love personified in Christ who took your place on the cross an infinite love as the ultimate expression of his infinite love, look, they're gonna say, they say you will do crazy things for love because love costs. And Jesus Christ paid the ultimate infinite price to love you. This is a kind of love that will give you a confidence. A confidence so great that you will no longer live to please other people. You're not afraid of what other people have to say. It's a love that allows you to take risks. And yet this is a kind of love that's also gonna humble you because you never earned it. You didn't do anything to deserve it. And so it's gonna get rid of pride. It's gonna get rid of the resentfulness and the comparisons and the anger and the bitterness, the gossip. It's going to get rid of the envying and the boasting to the degree that you believe that Jesus Christ is loving, loving you on the cross, living out verses four to seven for you. It's going to transform your life. And that love is going to transfer into you union with Christ so that you can love other people. As we come to the table today, let's reflect on, on our the perfect love of Jesus that we've received that eradicates the selfish love that we've been clinging on to all our lives. Let's pray.